Hey guys, it's Dawn and I wanted to let you know about a new space I'm creating called What's the Truth Community. If you experience trauma in childhood, the truth can be really elusive. In toxic families, the truth of what goes on behind closed doors is hidden. And I speak to people every day who are only just now beginning to discover the truth of who they really are years later because we were given so many false beliefs about ourselves. Nobody loves you. You should be ashamed. You'll never amount to anything. All the lies are manipulation within toxic family homes. But each belief that gets filed away in your subconscious mind is so powerful. Each belief changes every choice you make and that can change the entire direction of your life. If you are ready to create a beautiful life for yourself, come and join me in the What's the Truth community. By sharing truth, we are learning to step out of the fog and see what is the truth of your life so far. Because once you can see it, you can fix it. We are going to be talking about truth so that you can finally live in peace, freedom and authenticity. In the What's the Truth membership, you will have access to subscriber-only episodes, all ad-free and all for the cost of a cup of coffee a month. This is the most important community you will become a part of this year. If you listen via the Apple Podcasts app, you can sign up right there in the app. And if you listen on any other platform, you can sign up via Supercast. It's super easy and the links are in the show notes. This is your safe space. I'm so excited for you to join me. I didn't really feel like I was figuring out social dynamics very well. And like I had a couple of good friends, but I felt isolated and I felt picked on. And when someone has friends and there are people available to talk to, that doesn't mean that they will. So it takes, it takes someone reaching out. It, it's not only that they may not think of it or want to, it's that when you're feeling hopeless, you don't want to reach out to anyone because you don't see any hope in that. When you're in that dark place, there doesn't seem like a way out. So you need yeah. someone to reach in there and get you. Yeah, it's not always as easy as just reaching out for help. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls. And the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives. And that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you. What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are. Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. 
Hello beautiful souls and welcome to this week's episode. How are you doing in your corner of the world? How's your week going? We're living in crazy times right now and I feel like our feelings and our emotions can be all over the place. I've definitely been a bit like that myself this week. Everything that's happening in the world feels completely overwhelming at times. So hang in there and take a moment to breathe and remember how amazing you are. And I'm sending love to your beautiful soul in this moment. I heard from you that Michelle's story last week of her narcissistic father was heartbreaking to listen to and how some of you could feel that heartbreak connecting with your own story. And we don't need to have had exactly the same experience to connect with someone else's story because loneliness, fear, disconnect and all the emotions are a part of all of our stories to some degree. And hearing what Michelle went through connects us all on a deep soul level. This week we're hearing Carolyn's story and Carolyn grew up in a loving family home with three brothers and memories of playing with the neighborhood kids and spending summers at the pool and some really great fun times. But by the time Carolyn hit the teen years, life became confusing. Because when you feel that you've got no deep connection with anyone in your family or that no one will really hear you, who do you turn to for connection? Who do you rely on to help you get through the difficult times of growing up? This week, we're hearing a story that helps us to understand that we don't need to come from a completely dysfunctional family to feel completely alone. And as with all of my guests so far, Carolyn has so much wisdom to share with us. Please join me in hearing Carolyn's story. Hi, Caroline. Welcome. It's so great to see you. Hi, Don. Nice to see you. So let's just talk about what life was like for you as a little kid, say around the age of five. Do you remember it as generally a happy time? I do generally, yeah. Um, I have three older brothers and the only girl and the, and the youngest. So, you know, we, we played a lot together, but we also fought a lot together. And I don't have a lot of memories from that age, but I, I remember we lived, uh, I grew up mostly in the Houston area, but when I was five, we were in Fort Worth, just another Texas big city, not, not too much different, but we lived like in this cul-de-sac and that felt like kind of a safe place for us to like kind of play with other kids. And uh, we had snow there. We don't, we didn't have snow in Houston. So I have a few memories of that. And um, yeah, gen- generally some good memories from that time. It must've been hard being the girl who was with the three older brothers. How did that affect you? Did you get quite tough or did they, did they look after you or how, what was the dynamics with that? Yeah. So a lot of interesting things there. So one interesting thing is that two of them are twins and they're only 13 months older than me. Um, My, my poor dear mother. Um, (laughs) And then my oldest brother is about six and a half years. So there were very different dynamics between the twins and myself and then my oldest brother. And he was a little bit more protective and gentle. And if I had a nightmare, I could run into his bedroom. But with my twin brothers, that was a little more interesting because we shared some friend circles and the the interesting dynamic that I grew up in there is that uh, my parents held them back. We all had summer birthdays. So where I live, you can kind of choose whether you start your kids into the, the next grade or you wait a year, basically, when you have a summer birthday. And so my parents held them back and we all went through school together in the same grade. So 
I was sort of like a pseudo triplet. It was very <laughs> confusing to explain to people. Yeah, we're all in the same grade. No, we're not triplets. But we had some friends in common and like the the closeness and age, you know, we shared some similar activities and in some ways that was good. And in other ways, you know, my, my main memories from childhood are really just being beat up on by them <laughs> and having to defend myself. And I, I remember being very, very girly when I was very little, like these pictures of me six years old or so and younger, like frilly, pink, uh, you know, everything girly. And then there became a point where I became very much a tomboy. And I think that might have related to my brothers, but I think also related to some friends that I had at the time. So yeah, I think I, I grew up learning to be tough to fit myself. Um, but I also had to learn how to not act that way with <laughs> other friends, you know, because I would you know, try to defend myself to my brother. So I think I developed that like defensive personality. And so I would, <laughs> you know, we would kick and hit and I would use my fingernails against them and things like that. And I had I remember having to learn to not do that with friends. So yeah, it was, it was an interesting dynamic to grow up in, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So what were your parents doing with that dynamic? Did they try and help that work better? Or, I mean, in some households, it's really just survival of the fittest, isn't it? I don't think so. I think I think my parents were overwhelmed in a lot of ways with four kids and my mom wanted to be a, uh, she wanted to stay home with us and not work, but four kids, um, she needed money. And so what she did, the, the way that she found to kind of stay home and be with us when we got home from after school and in summers and also generate income was to create like a home daycare kind of business. So she had not only us four to care for, but she had other babies in the house and sometimes that was up to like six kids or so so you know she would have like 10 kids that she was wrangling and so I think we just like fended for ourselves in a lot of ways which I I think in some ways I think I I don't know it's hard to know exactly how I remember things as a kid and how things happen now but I feel like adults intervene too much and these days and don't let kids figure it out so I think in some ways like we were recently watching home videos and even when we were young we were watching one where my brothers were like toddlers and I was a baby and we're just hanging out around the house and one of them comes over and just shoves me and takes my food and like, you know, my dad's like not doing anything. He's just like videoing and we're like, dad, why did you not like a little help here? So, and then I, I think in some ways there were some like double standards that maybe that was their way of trying to protect me, especially as we were teenagers. There were things my brothers were allowed to go do that I was not allowed to go do. And they're like, you're a girl and to protect you. And I was like, well, <laughs> they get to go do the thing. And so I didn't really care for that either necessarily. Yes. It's very hard. It's double standards, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So with your mum, what was your relationship like with her growing up as a small child? I think, you know, overall positive. And I, you know, I have memories of her always being there and helping us if we got, you know, a scrape or or something like that. Um, I remember her being nurturing and that sort of thing at a young age. That dynamic sort of changed as I got older, but, or not that I didn't view her as nurturing, but yeah, you know, it changes <laughs> when you get older. Yeah. And what about your dad? How do you remember him as a little kid? I, I don't remember him being around as much. He was more of like the disciplinarian and he was, uh, it was like his role. My family had pretty old school kind of gender roles and my dad was working and he'd come home and he'd mow the lawn and that was the kind of thing he was not as hands-on with us but he was the disciplinarian and if it was we were ever doing anything wrong it was dad to control and if we ever needed comfort or 
anything or permission or food or whatever, you know, it was mom. And mm-hmm. so when you, when you talk about discipline from your dad, what, what was his form of discipline? We got spanked as kids and grounded and uh, yelled at. <laughs> have a lot of memories of like anger <laughs> from my dad. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not to just paint him with that one brush because I'm sure we'll um, talk about other things as well. But yeah, it was, it was pretty old school. It was, there was not a lot of, Hey, like, let's talk about why that wasn't a good choice or what you could have done instead, or how to, you know, how to be better next time. It was just like, you're grounded. Don't ever do that again. Don't talk to me that way. Spanking, you know, things like that. Yeah. How does it feel? Do you remember how it feels when you're told just don't do it again and you're grounded? Does it feel like I can't speak? I don't have anything. Mm -hmm. I'm not allowed an opinion. Yeah, I think there definitely was some of that. And there was a lot of, like, there wasn't a lot of explaining like why or what to do instead. And so I feel like that didn't equip me with the tools to know how to not do it. It just became, it developed like an authoritarian, you just don't talk to me that way, or you just don't do that. And why? Because I'm the boss, Um, rather than like developing an open conversation and helping me learn what to do instead. And I, I really... I'm trying to think back because you asked how it felt and things like that. Cause I, I have a lot of layers on this one because especially now it's very interesting getting to watch them. I don't have kids, but I have eight nieces and nephews right. and most of them are under the age of 10. So I'm watching my parents interact with them and I'm, I'm really seeing like, Oh, this is exactly how they dealt with us. And again, like I said, I don't have kids. I don't, I know what's that like cliche, you know, what to do with how to be a good parent, you know, everything about being a parent until you have kids. So I don't want to come off as like yep. pretending like I know the right answer, but I, I've worked with kids for most of my life. I'm in a professional setting. And so I have learned some things along the way. And some of the biggest things I've learned are teaching kids why they shouldn't be doing that thing, what effect it has on like our community contract of like safety and uh, trust and, or whatever, well-being, and then what to do instead. So, you know, like, for example, my, my niece was like snapping at my parents, like, give me my cereal, give me my milk. And they were, you don't talk to us that way. And I, I said, can you try saying it like this? And like, and it was like power struggle, power struggle. And I came in and I said, hey, can you, can you try saying it like this? Didi and Papa, can I have some cereal and she said that and like we moved on and like everything I was like it's so simple wow and so I was like oh my gosh there was never a here's what you do instead it was just don't do that and I don't that didn't equip me it didn't give me any tools yes that's so interesting isn't it because as little kids we often have no idea what is actually expected of us we haven't figured it out and we haven't learned it yet Mm -hmm. and all we need is somebody to make it really clear what are the choices that we should be making in the way we speak or just being told no is just confusing Mm -hmm. isn't it that's that's a really good point so how much of that from your parents do you think that they got from their upbringing? Mm-hmm. Was that pretty much how they were raised? Yeah, definitely. I, I can see a lot of generational patterns. I didn't know my grandparent. Well, so I had one granddad die before I was born and another die when I was five. So very few memories of him. So I really just saw my parents interact with their own mothers. And so the, that's not the whole story, but you can gather a lot of information from that. And so I, I can definitely see that there's some, some generational cycles and, and trauma and things going on. And yeah, I, I think it was like they, they both grew up in a very black and white authoritarian house, like 
what's right and wrong is very clear and you respect your elders is like the biggest thing. And that's still like, that's still what gets my mom all worked up when any of the grandkids speak to her disrespectfully. Response to that is, well, I think everyone should respect everyone regardless of their age. Right. So like, let's teach them that not to disrespect people because they're old. Like why that doesn't teach them anything, you know, teach people to speak to each other respectfully regardless. So I think they're, they're definitely acting the way that they were raised. And yeah, I think I heard someone put it this way. Like you can't expect someone to use a tool that they don't have in their box. So it's like, if my right. parents didn't have those tools to help us, learn those things and speak to us in a specific way that really helped us understand how to behave and why we should want to behave that way. I don't hold that against them necessarily, but it's work that I've had to do as an adult. Yes. You know, kind of undo some of those messages that I received as a kid. Yes, absolutely. It's such a cycle, isn't it? And somebody mm -hmm. at some point has to break the cycle. And mm -hmm. I guess we're getting much more aware of all of those things. If it's just passed and it's been passed down and passed down and passed down mm -hmm. and nobody's giving you anything different, it's kind of hard to make a change. So I feel mm -hmm. like I'm so happy that we're becoming so much more aware of this now. So let's move ahead a little bit and to say when you're around 10 years of age, Mm -hmm. So what was your life like at this point? Yeah, around that age, I was, um, I was involved in gymnastics and softball. That was really like the only brief time in my life that I was into sports at all. Um, I was really into our, we had a, a swim team in our neighborhood and I was really into that and really into just hanging out of the pool all summer. I basically lived there <laughs> uh, as a kid. And I lived in the suburbs of Houston in a, a pretty safe neighborhood. And there were a lot of other school kids in the, in the neighborhood. So we would often just like ride our bikes around together and, and just hang around. Sometimes we'd call ahead, but sometimes it, we really would just go and ring the doorbell and, you know, hey, are you available to play? You know, things like that. So yeah, it was pretty fun. I love that time before the screens came along and, and kids yeah. were just out doing stuff. <laughs> Oh, sorry. I don't want to like over romanticize it either because like we definitely had our TV and video games. And that's another thing. Like my dad has his like rose colored glasses on. He says like we never played video games or, he, you know, he balks at how the grandkids will, will play their Nintendo Switch. And it's like, okay, dad, like, yes, there were times where we were riding our bikes around the neighborhood and we were at the pool, but there were also like full days of summer. We were glued to the TV. So yeah. <laughs> so what was your relationship like with your parents as you were around that age? I think, it, you know, it was still good. I, I have memories of them always being there for every school activity that we went to. And I do have some other memories though, of like, <laughs> so I played softball, parents were there and my dad was doing his best to encourage me, but really what it felt like was he was just yelling at me. <laughs> right. I can't believe you missed that ball. Get your, get your head in the game. Get your eye on the ball, you know, things like that. And I remember that he was the reason I didn't want to play sports anymore. Wow. <laughs> because I didn't, I didn't like getting yelled at like that. So yeah. And, you know, same kind of dynamics that my mom was home and taking care of the kids and she was the one that we went to for nurturing and my dad was the one for discipline. But we also knew we could go to my dad if we wanted like sweets because my mom wouldn't let us have sweets or dessert or anything like that. But okay. we, yeah, 11, 12, 13, I think a lot changes, you know, everyone's going through puberty and like everything's different and social dynamics are different and, and 
your coursework and all of those things. Your elementary school is much more of a nurturing environment. And then it felt like yes. kind of being thrown to the wolves. And like, I didn't really feel like I was figuring out social dynamics very well. And like, I had a couple of good friends, but I felt isolated and I felt picked on and you know every time I interact with people from other countries they're they're like you know we watch these American movies and it's like they have these like clicks of like the jocks and the cheerleaders and the um the athletes and whatever and the nerds and like surely it's not like that I'm like no it really is really (laughs) it really is and so like there was a lot of that that was just suddenly no one ever tells you about or what to do with. And there were the popular kids and I was not a popular kid. And so I think there was just some social distress and trying to figure that out. I don't know. That's the, that's the way I was feeling. I do, I do remember, yeah, sixth, seventh, and a little bit of eighth grade for me was very dark. Okay. And how did that present? You just sort of felt distant from everything or you were just feeling really low or mm-hmm. how did that present for you at that age? Yeah, I think generally feeling just disconnected and feeling numb in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, the things that used to light me up didn't, and I didn't know where my place was in the world. And do you remember having some suicidal thoughts? I don't think I would have actually, I didn't take any like actions or attempts towards that, but I remember just not wanting to exist anymore. Wow. That's hard, isn't it? And who did you have to talk to about that? I had friends and I don't know how, raw or real or or open I got with them about that I don't really remember talking to anyone about it and it's not that my parents weren't there but we didn't talk about things like that and I felt like they didn't get me or that they didn't care that I was feeling down so I just didn't talk to them about it wow so that's really hard isn't it when you're Mm -hmm. feeling that way and you feel like there's nobody really to to just say I'm not coping Mm -hmm. I need I need help it's really hard isn't it Yeah. And it's like, by all measures, and, you know, I've done a lot of work with with kids, as I mentioned, and working in the school system and reminding kids who they can go to to talk to if they're needing anything. And those same structures were there. You know, there was a school counselor, there were teachers who cared. I had parents who were generally supportive. And I don't know if I would have really opened up to them, maybe it would have been different, but I think I just closed myself off. So it's not that people weren't there. I'm just thinking about this. I I mentioned this just because even in like the best systems and structures, when someone has friends and there are people available to talk to, that doesn't mean that they will. So it takes, it takes someone reaching out rather than expecting the person who's going through something tough to reach out to others. I I think there'd be so many kids that will probably need to talk to somebody. They just don't really know how to go about it. Mm -hmm. And another element to that is that it's not only that they may not think of it or want to, it's that when you're feeling so hopeless, you don't want to reach out to anyone because you don't see any hope in that. So you don't, when you're in that dark place, there doesn't seem like a way out. So you need yeah. someone to reach in there and get you. Yeah, it's not always as easy as just reaching out for help. Yes, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. So with your parents at that time, you said that you were into sport and you felt like that was stressful because of your dad's reaction to that. Mm-hmm. What about other activities? You were quite creative. Did you feel like those things helped you at that time? And were your parents supportive of, of that? 
Yeah, so I really didn't do sports after about the age of 10. I got more into band and theater. And band was very supportive because like everyone in my family has played a musical instrument. And so I played the clarinet for a little while and got into theater. And the theater was like a little bit less supported. You know, like I say, in theory, my parents were supportive of everything that we did because they never missed a play. They never missed a band concert. They never missed like a football game when we were there with the marching band. But I think like on a deeper level of support, they never understood the theater thing, which is a, yeah, a little bit of a different dynamic and support can look a lot of different ways. Being there physically, I think is important, but I think there's something deeper that parents can do to try to show a genuine interest in their kids' activities, or if that thing doesn't genuinely interest the parent, I think it's okay. But the way that you react and and talk about it and things like that, like there were a lot of messages around those weirdo theater people and, you know, hippie artists and like things like that, that let me know that they were not fully supportive, or at least my dad. I think my mom was a little bit more supportive, but it was also like a place of like, oh, that's neat. That's a neat little thing. Carolyn does. I don't think they really understood the importance that it played in my life. And is that because you didn't have that many deep conversations with them about things? I mean, would you, would you have sat down and and really explained how important it was, or you didn't really have those opportunities? I don't think I had those opportunities and I didn't think I, maybe that's not fair to say, because I think they would have listened if I would have tried to bring it up. But I, I just don't think we had a dynamic where we were very open in communication like that. And I don't think I, knew that I really needed to talk to them and let them know about the importance, you know, instead my response was just to kind of be a little bit guarded about it. What about with boys and that sort of thing? Were you able to talk to your parents about stuff like that? (laughs) Um, No, not really. So I have my first memory of talking to my mom about a boy that I had a crush on. So (laughs) I don't know how to explain to you my mother she is hilarious she really is like such a character people meet her and they're like what who is this is she real and you you think she's like putting on a show or something but this is just who she is and she's just like goofy but I also think she lives on another planet and doesn't (laughs) doesn't really like understand a lot of things that most people are going through and so I remember telling her about a boy that I had a a crush on. Oh, and then this is another dynamic that frustrated me as a kid that because of the babysitting business that she had, she would speak to us like she would speak to the two-year-old. And as you're like an adolescent, that is so like patronizing and frustrating. And so I I told her about this boy and she goes, and I was like, what the heck was that response? I'm never talking to you again. And I basically never have like talked to her about another like crush that I had. So <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> how old were you? Th- how old were you at that point? I think I was like 11. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the, the reaction that you just really don't want to get, isn't it? I'm grown up and uh, I want to I get a grown up reaction. And then it's almost like it's a joke otherwise, right? Yeah. It's like, those kinds of things that like we've just never had that sort of open relationship where I felt like I could ever talk to them about any of that sort of stuff. That's, that's a shame, isn't it? 
It is. Cause like I watched this, I watched some friends grow up and like their relationship with their parents and especially with their mom would turn into this like deep friendship when yes. you know they were grown and didn't need to be like mothered so much, but still had this very close relationship where they could talk about life and things going on. And we, we have that a little bit more now sometimes, but not really like on a, a level, like they're definitely a lot of things that I just don't talk about with my parents. I talk about with my friends instead. Yes. I guess if you want your kids to talk to you about those things, then you need to build the trust from an early age that they're mm-hmm. going to want to continue talking. And I guess mm-hmm. if, if that trust gets broken a couple of times along the way, then you kind of miss your opportunity, don't you, as a parent? Mm-hmm. because yeah. if you think you're going to get that kind of reaction, then you're not going to be talking to them. So what about as a teenager, did you generally get along with your parents during that time or did it get hard? I think it got harder um, in my, my teen years. I was, I was eager to get out of the house by about, by about my sophomore year. So how old was I then? About 15 years. I was just really eager. I honestly felt ready for college I felt like in my coursework, I was bored. I was not interested in the subjects. I kind of knew I wanted to explore some other things and just ready to live on my own. And I felt like my parents were very overprotective and we were already living in the suburbs, like I said, which is like the safest, most boring place. And they were even overprotective of me in that environment. And so it just felt like, like I knew there was a great big world out there I wanted to explore. And there was just like, the claws just came in and the more that they tried to cage me, the more I wanted to be free. So I do remember a lot of those dynamics, but then again, you know, like I I think there's like anything in life, there's complexity and there's nuance. And I think people are are very complex people. So, you know, I I say those things, but of course there were very good things too. And and, in a lot of ways, my parents sacrificed everything for us kids and they wanted to make sure that we had the best life that we could. And so they're, there's a lot of things they did well and other things that I feel like we're lacking a little bit. So, uh, you know, it's hard to paint it with one brush. There's nuance to it all. Yes, absolutely. But you you said you felt like you wanted to escape because it was so Mm -hmm. overprotective and what sort of things were you wanting to do that you weren't allowed to do? Was it just going out with friends? Was it just a lack of trust on their part, do you think? Yeah, I don't know what the lack of trust was because I couldn't have been like a more like follow the rules kind of kid. I yeah. I was not into any trouble. And I, yeah, so some of it was around going out with friends and some of it was around just lack of anything interesting even to do, even if my parents did have, even if they've given me full permission to go do anything, it's like, what's there to do for like a teenager where I grew up, there was like nothing. (laughs) So there's nowhere to go, nowhere to hang out. So some of it was just wanting to, to get out and experience different places to live and things like that. Yeah. And some of it was like, you know, rule, rules were so strict in my house around dating and around grades, like school was the most important thing. And a lot of pressure was put on us for that. And by the time I was a junior and senior in high school, that pressure was like really cracking me. And it was over subjects that I knew I didn't want anything to do with. Math and science have never interested in me. So I'm like, why do I need to take advanced statistics? Never going to use it. And 
you know, the teachers will say, oh, well, you'd be surprised you'll use this. Okay, well, here I am, 33 years old, never used it. <laughs> yes. So do you feel like with your parents, obviously your parents are good people. Did you, was there an element of feeling like you weren't really able to just be you, to be yourself? I think so. And I think I didn't know who I was or even now if I do, I think that's something that's always becoming. But, you know, something I've said a lot in this interview is like, well, I felt like I couldn't talk about that. So my response was to be guarded and shut down. So I think in a lot of ways, if I wanted to be myself, I felt like I at least had to hide it from my parents in a way. Like there were spaces where I could be myself, like especially the theater community that I made in high school. Like those were some really good friends. And I you know, it was a whole new world of like expression and things like that. So I think I learned to be myself in certain spaces and then to kind of like preciously guard it when it didn't feel safe. Yeah, absolutely. So what is your relationship now with your parents like? It continues to be, I think, a little bit complicated. (laughs) Uh, Again, by all markers, there is not like any sort of big, huge stressful thing other than politics, which is a great divide in my family. So, well, by the great divide, I mean, it's myself against everyone else. (laughs) So I feel a little isolated there. And there is some, there's an element of like, I don't know when politics became this in America, maybe it always has been, but it's, it's not just been a difference of opinion. It's been a difference of morality. And I'm deeply disturbed by some of the views that my family holds and my parents as well. So, so some things feel divided there and I feel deeply saddened and, and scared in a lot of ways around some of the views they hold there. So again, it's just kind of a thing we try not to talk about. And then there's a lot with what I'm doing professionally and all of that that I still feel guarded about towards my parents. And I feel like they don't understand what I'm doing or why I'm doing it. And I don't know, I don't know what exactly they think about me, but I I think they feel like I don't have a real job and I'm not really, it's not the life that they had imagined for me, I would assume. So, you know, when we get together, we can be pleasant and we can chat, but I've, I've tried to open up deep conversations with them. So, you know, when I was feeling depressed when I was younger, could I have talked to my parents about it? And as an adult, I've tried to open up conversations. Like I recently tried to open up a conversation with them around what I'm doing with my business. And I, I initially sent an email to my whole family because I kind of wanted to explain sort of why I'd made some career pivots in the last year and what I'm doing and what's behind it and how I feel it's serving the world. And my siblings responded and my parents did not. Okay. Just zero response. And so to sort of guard and protect myself, I, I kind of like went and hid some things on social media from them just, you know, because in doing my business, it's like you're advertising a lot on Facebook and Instagram and things like that. And they're very active on my Facebook business page. And so I was like, well, you know, if they're not going to be supportive of this. I'm just maybe not going to have them see it for a little while. So at least I feel like I can fully express myself and fully do what I need to do here in my business. But I was speaking to them on, a, on the phone maybe a week or so after I sent that email. And they had called to talk about something else. But I brought it up and said, hey, did you get my email? And they were like, yeah, we didn't really know what to say. And yeah, so we, we kind of talked about it and they, they responded like, oh, okay, well, you know, that's neat. Um, so it's that like surface level support that I felt again. And that like, yeah. um, this thing's uncomfortable, so we're just not going to talk about it. And I was trying to break that dynamic by opening that conversation 
but because of the way they responded, I kind of went back to that old pattern of, well, I'm going to guard myself and hide things from them. And if I need to feel like I'm going to be my full self, then maybe I just need to do that in a way where they don't interact with the content. They don't see it. Hopefully it's all complicated. (laughs) It is complicated, isn't it? I guess they're so, they are so much who they are. So it's Mm -hmm. very hard to change people as they get older, but it's really hard, isn't it? Because I guess there's a part of you that would feel you just want to be acknowledged for who you actually are. Mm-hmm. you know who you really are and and just be you and I guess maybe that can't happen yeah and and part of it's just around communication like let's talk about it and yeah that's I'm not necessarily trying to change who they are but it is perhaps an unrealistic expectation to hope that after a lifetime of not really talking about things together that we could open up a dialogue, but I think it is possible. And I, I kind of tried and, and what I really said to them was, you know, here's what I'm putting out into the world. You may not understand it. That's okay. Here's what's behind it. If you see something that you're not sure about or you have questions about, like, I'd love for you to open up a conversation with me and talk to me about it. Cause that's part of the thing is that they, they won't, they will talk to anyone else about it. You know, if there's something that I'm doing that they don't quite think is right, there's that dynamic that they'll talk to all of my sister-in-laws and my sister-in-laws will tell me, Oh, mom was asking me questions about blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, she didn't talk to me about that. So I think there's an opportunity Mm -hmm. too for us to break that cycle that if she's trying to talk to us about each other, just go, well, why don't you ask her about that? So, cause she'll come and talk to me about my sister-in-laws too. And you know, we have that power. If she's not going to break that cycle, we have some autonomy there to choose to break that. I think it's just about wanting to open up a dialogue and talk about it if, if there's something that they don't quite understand. Yeah, that's very interesting that she's happy to go and speak to other people, but not to you. Like you say, we do have the power to change that by just mm-hmm. saying, no, no, you need to go and speak to her about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's been a lot of lessons of reminding myself that I can't control other people and I can't control their reactions to myself or my actions. The things that I do have control over are myself and my own thoughts, feelings, and actions. And so I can choose how I respond to them. I can't control what they're doing. And, and also something that Gina DeV was talking about recently, speaking of her, she was, I was listening in on a call and someone was talking about family dynamics and she's, she said something along the lines of, you know, when we try to make anyone else source, God, universe, whatever you want to call it, when we try to make anyone else source or we're wanting something from someone else, we will always be disappointed. So we have to get that. We have to get what we need from source and we have to find it and give it to ourselves in abundance rather than expecting it from other people. So that hit home to me and that like shifted me in a second. I was like, wow, I I really was. I was trying to get something from them. I don't know what it was, approval or understanding or communication. And anytime we're trying to get something from another human, we're going to be disappointed. So I think I've just kind of let go of trying to get that. And I'm doing a lot of work to recognize where those things come from, get them from source, get them within, center myself and continue to go about the world doing the things that I need to do. And then hopefully they'll come around and understand. And if not, that's not anything I can control. I'd love that. I love how we can hear those messages over our lifetime. But, and then somebody says it a certain way and you, oh my gosh, that's totally 
what I need Mm -hmm. to do. So what are you actually doing in terms of mindfulness practices? Do you do anything that's helped you to get over or get stronger in who you are? Mm -hmm. I've been doing actually quite a bit of work. I, I do a morning routine where I, I sit and I do some journaling Uh, I sort of set aside 30 minutes and I sort of pick from a a menu of things that feel right that day. I do journaling, yoga, meditation, or reading something. And I've been going through the artist way right now. So that has a lot in it of inner child work and, you know, unblocking those things that are, are blocking our creativity and a lot of it is family dynamics and recognizing harmful messages from our past. So just, Recognizing those things and flipping those around to positive affirmations has been really huge. And then this isn't necessarily a practice, but sort of a mindset. I was doing yoga one day and I was thinking about the word namaste. And there was something recently that had happened where my sister-in-law did something that really, really hurt my mom. And then of course, by proxy hurt the family. And I was thinking about, you know, that word doesn't really have a translation into English, but I've heard it kind of said in a few different ways, like the light in me recognized is the light in you or the highest in me sees the highest in you, some version of that. And I was, and she came to my mind and I thought like, even in that moment where she had done something horrible, I was like, can I see the highest in her? Can I see the light in her? And so that's something I try to do when I I'm feeling frustrated or feeling like like, I can't believe they think this or I can't believe they did this, trying to see the light in myself and seeing the light in them and seeing if I can speak to and interact with their highest self and then giving that in abundance, giving that whatever it is that I'm wanting from them, recognizing that I can get that from source, I can have it in abundance and then giving it to them. And that's sort of like that's like a mental, like I just visualize myself doing that. That's not like a actual interaction we have, but those kind of practices have really helped me kind of just ground and center and recognize where the harm in my past came in and how I have the autonomy as an adult to flip that around. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love that. I love that. I'm going to do that too. (laughs) I like the way you described it because it is, we all have that higher self. And I guess there's so much stuff that we've learned through our lives from our parents. And it's again, that cycle, isn't it? And all the things Mm -hmm. that have been brought into everybody's lives that can be so harmful and hurtful to other people to just be able to say, well, that's, that's all this stuff here, but like, let me just Mm -hmm. see who you really are and connect on a different level. And that's such a beautiful thing to do. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Um, I would hope that someone else could give me that same grace if I'm not my best self, you know, that someone could still see the higher self that is in me, even if I'm not presenting that at that moment. So trying to make that more of a practice to really give that. Yeah. I love that. I talk about the family treasure box and it's a bit like what you mentioned before, the toolbox that we have Mm. as a parent. What do you think are the things that we should be giving to our kids that are really important? I think, I mean, that's a big question because obviously there's a lot. I think one thing that I feel like I didn't quite get as a kid is, you know, a parent's job is to help their child understand the experiences they're having and how that incorporates into 
their positive worldview and the best version of themselves and things like that. So whether that's in discipline, sort of in some of the things that we talked about, about why you should be interacting or speaking with people in a certain way, or why we don't hurt people in that way, and then giving them the tools to, for what to do. But this idea also kind of relates to, we didn't really touch too much on this, but I, I, something I'm realizing as an adult is that I, I feel like I didn't have a lot of validation around my feelings and experiences that when I was feeling sad or angry, you know, it was just like, just stop crying or just, you know, and, and like the, the crying was what was the annoying thing to my parents, not the like, whatever I was feeling. So of course that just made me cry harder, you know? So uh, I think there is a push now, at least where I live, I can see part of the job that I was doing was working with school systems to teach social emotional learning using the arts and that was really cool. And I, I could see at least in the school district where I live, and hopefully I think in a lot of places around the world, there is a push for social emotional learning with kids, teaching them like your feelings, whatever they are, are valid. If you're feeling angry, if you're feeling sad, like that's okay. But like what you do with it is what matters. So we don't punch when we're mad, but here's what we can do. Here's how we can practice some breathing techniques, or here's how we can really learn to sit with that sadness. And that's okay. And we recognize that feelings a visitor and it's going to come and then it's going to go. But I didn't have any of that as a kid. So I think I just felt very out of control of my feelings. And so I think one tool to go back to that is that a parent can help their child understand what they're feeling is, name it, because sometimes the kid doesn't even know what they're feeling is. If you can name it, you can tame it. And then understanding why they're feeling with that, that way, what they can do with it, and then how to like incorporate that into a positive, healthy relationship with others and with themselves and how to move through the world, recognizing all of those things and knowing that whatever they're experiencing is valid. Because I think that invalidation was like a very big part of my childhood and it's taken a lot of work as an adult to undo it. But I, I think that people are better off if we can teach that as kids. Absolutely. I love that. And I know as a kid myself, when I felt angry, it was like you shouldn't be angry don't feel mm -hmm. it was shut down and so then there's just this shame for ever feeling that because you mm -hmm. don't it's like oh I shouldn't be angry I shouldn't be upset it's like you shouldn't be any of those things and so yeah it's like a cycle of and, and you can't get out of it because no one's telling you how to get out of it no one's saying well instead of doing that you never get told those things so it's so awesome for mm -hmm. kids if we can do that for them now, just to say, hey, there's a choice here. How about you try something completely different? Think of it a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. So I know that creativity and art have been a, a big part of your life. And now you've created this amazing business called Edgecraft. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit about that. Tell us about that. Yeah, so my last name is Edge. So the business I created with that is Edgecraft. And I initially created that as sort of a, um, just a play on words, but lately been leaning more into responses I was getting from people around some of my artwork. People would say, oh, your art is so edgy. And I was like, oh yeah, it kind of is. And like, so I don't know how I missed that in the, the creation of my business, but I've been sort of leaning further into that. The business name is Edgecraft. I make edgy art. I mean, the, the kind of art that I create is something called paper quilling, which if you're not familiar, it involves taking long strips of paper and rolling them and shaping them into different designs. 
And then usually you glue that on edge to a, a back cardstock or mat board. And it's, I always like really struggle to describe this artwork because I think it's the kind of thing that you have to see in, in order to understand it. So I invite you to check out my, my Instagram. But what I've kind of been building behind that, like, you know, I've been leaning into this edginess, but it's like, why, what, what's behind that? And for me, it's around all these things that we just talked about, like as a child that I felt like there was not validation, there was not freedom of expression. I was not allowed to be my authentic self. So some of the art has like curse words in it, for example. And I was taught that I should never say curse words which to me translates to, if you're taught never to say something, I believe you're taught not to think or feel what's behind it. So Mm -hmm. for me, it's almost like a rebellion. It's like a a way of just like fully expressing myself through art. And that's what I'm sort of inviting other people into this world of stepping into your authentic self, validating whatever it is that you're experiencing and understanding it better through art. So that's kind of what is behind the, the brand. Oh, it sounds amazing. And I have seen some of your artwork and it's absolutely beautiful. So I encourage everybody to go and check it out. And whereabouts can we find you? So you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Edgecraft ATX. The ATX is for Austin, Texas. And then my website is edgecraftatx.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I've absolutely loved chatting to you today and you have so much wisdom and from all the experiences that you've had in your life so far. So thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you so much, Dawn. It was really great to chat with you. It was so beautiful chatting with Caroline today and it's so clear that we can be part of a good, well-meaning family with very present parents who appear to be doing all the right things and yet We can still feel alone and like there's really no one to turn to. It's actually really sad. Here are the takeaways. Number one, instead of giving your kids a command like don't do that, give them choices or tools for next time so that they're learning what to do and not just what not to do. Name the feeling, help them to understand why they're feeling that way, what they can do with the feeling and validate it instead of dismissing it. Number two, respect everyone regardless of their age. Being a kid doesn't mean you should be given less respect. Number three, when kids turn into teens, they're often trying to figure out their place in the world. It's a tricky time and they need connection and understanding for where they're at. Number four, when kids are depressed, they may not reach out. So we may need to reach in. Look for the signs of depression in your kids. Things like not going out anymore, not getting things done at school, withdrawing from close family and friends, not doing the usual enjoyable activities and inability to concentrate. Number five, talk, listen and communicate openly with your kids from a young age so you start building trust for when things get harder later on. And number six, we have the power to break generational patterns in our families. Be the person to make that change. Thank you so much for being here. Please check the show notes for all the links related to this podcast, including book recommendations. If you have a story to share, questions about this episode, or want to connect in any way, I would love to chat please come and find me on Instagram at My Big Love Project. And please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. 
Can you think of one person whose life might change a tiny bit in a positive way by hearing this episode? Please go ahead and share it with someone you know needs to hear it. These stories are so important. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thank you for joining me. I'll catch you next week.